one of the things I like about having six people do this is that you also get a look at what's a split decision. Where is it? Is it ever three to three or four to two or five to one? That's also a, a different expectation than something where all six people pick the same result. Yeah, there was one maybe even last year or the year before when uh, maybe it was Frostburg or somebody like that. Like everyone picked the same team to win, but they all picked it by three points. So it's still kind of a toss up pick, you know. Nobody will be stunned if the other team won, obviously, if they all thought it would be a close game. No, but it, it, they still get super, super butt hurt. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, and it's finally playoff time. We're covering our 20th set of the NCAA Division III playoffs here on the website, and we welcome you to the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 224, which is Season 12, Episode 24, or the one with a first-round preview. I'm Pat Coleman of D3Football.com, and it's time to welcome back in co-host Keith McMillan. I'm happy to be back. We're happy to have you. On our Monday pod, number 223, we had quick reaction to the building of the bracket. We talked with committee chair Jim Catanzaro. And we dealt with the first wave of general disappointment, shall we say, over the construction of the bracket. But uh, Keith has been holding in his analysis all week, so I'm just going to back off and let him have the mic for a while. I've tweeted out a few drips and drafts, but since I seeded the Sunday podcast to Frank Rossi, I've formed my opinion over a few days instead of instantly. And I think what I want to say is round one stinks. It stinks. Now, obviously, if you have a team in the field, then there's a game for you to get excited about this weekend. But for those of us just looking for great teams to face off and maybe deliver a dramatic finish, I don't see but a few games that intrigue me. There were seven ranked teams that didn't make the field and two nine and ones plus a handful of two lost teams left on the bubble. And there are just eight unbeatens in the field as opposed to 12 last season. So it's just a year where the field broke differently more than it is an indictment of the selection committee. I think the best way to look at this opening round is as a chance to see some great players face even greater competition. Denison QB, Kanan Gabley, Eureka running back, Lee Anthony Reesnover are two that come to mind. And then to look at it as a precursor to round two and what could honestly be the best quarterfinal round ever. Through that prism, I'm into it. Yeah, that's awesome. We don't always have an exciting opening round. And in fact, we've often talked about this round as a play-in of sorts to the round of 16 where stuff gets intense and gets serious. The best part about round one is that the few games that are competitive are all going to come down to the end around the same time. And that span between 2.30 p.m. Eastern and about 3.45. So those of you who don't have a team to root for on Saturday can just flick back and forth between games like we will and enjoy those and not really worry about number one seed beating number eight seed 53 to seven. I think you're totally right there. But you know, how many games will be in doubt during our favorite hour, hour and a half of the year? Delaware Valley Muhlenberg should be good. Center in Washington Jefferson could be fun. St. Norbert and Trine, maybe. Hmm. RPI Husson, Bethel Wartburg. I mean, maybe I'm brushing off a chance for Harden Simmons to see if he could stay closer than four touchdowns at UMHB. I know the committee's hands were a bit tied, but I, I want a UW Platteville St. John's finish, and I don't know where it's going to come from. That's enough maybes, though, that maybe we'll get a few of them to be awesome. True. I'm someone always surprises, and with 16 mostly simultaneous games, we do have the one West Coast kickoff this year. There should be plenty to enjoy. I'm just resisting the urge to skip ahead to UMHB, St. John's, Mountain Union, John Carroll, Brockport, Frostburg, and Whitewater versus either North Central or Bethel. Like That quarterfinal round is when I'll be all jazzed up. You'll be jazzed up, and will you still be kind of high on tryptophan and leftover turkey? I think I'll be over it by then. I just love to have, uh, just if I have just enough turkey 
left by Saturday or Sunday to have a nice sandwich between some thick hearty bread with uh, enough of the stuffing and maybe also the mashed potatoes on the side. The best part about Thanksgiving is not only, of course, getting together with family, that, but then remembering to take the leftover containers so you can take enough of it back home with you. Oh, wow. That's a pro move right there. I definitely think the uh, the turkey sandwiches the week after Thanksgiving are, a, are always a hit. If you if you want to get really creative, you know, you make a chicken soup, but you just use the turkey. Mm. And uh, with the kind of weather that we've had out here in the east, where it was kind of snow, sleet, hailish, it's super soup weather. I'm the wild rice guy in my family. My brother, the one who's not involved with uh, D3 at all, is the uh, the turkey and the gravy guy. I just love to have the wild rice left over to do basically what you just talked about with the soup. I put a bunch of wild rice into something, that, uh, an already canned soup or something like that. And, you know, who has time to make their own soup? But at least I've elevated that stupid little $1.75 can of soup to something that's a little more fresh. That's another pro move. We'll talk more in depth in terms of previewing our Thanksgiving dinner. No, I'm sorry, in terms of previewing each bracket here in a little bit. But since uh, it's a new season with new playoff teams and lots of new listeners, lots of new listeners, we had all-time highs in listeners for each of the past two podcasts, uh, it's a good time to mention some of the perennial truisms. First off, we've seen teams in the past that are heavy run-oriented teams and teams that are heavy pass-oriented teams that have success in the early rounds of the playoffs, but usually peter out by the quarterfinals. And there's one really important reason why. John Carroll quarterback Anthony Meglin and his team saw exactly how this worked a couple of years ago. Here he's chatting with Brendan Gulick after last Saturday's game and win against Baldwin Wallace. Teams that control the line of scrimmage, especially at this level, tend to find ways to win games when they're grinded out like this. When you start to think about playoff football, cold weather, nasty conditions, Northeast Ohio, if you have the chance to host, where is the emphasis on establishing that ground game early on? I think, you know, we, we pride ourselves so much and we have done it. It's been our, it's been preached um, ever since the off season was, is just be a tough football team. And I think that we are a tough football team. I mean, Mike King and Ellie rushed for 270. I put in a hundred yards, but you know, all those things are connected by one thing and that's our offensive line. And we're led by five guys who up front who are just some, some bad dudes you know you got a guy playing with a broken hand up front you got a guy you got two guys well three seniors who have pretty much played every snap for the past three years and then you got two sophomores who have played every snap of their career so far so you got a veteran group up front who are just tough as nails um, and they make great holes to run through they're fun when they're pulling around and and you're following Dicko into a hole you know it's going to open up and uh, and and just establishing the run game just like you said you're playing in northeast Ohio if we go to New York we go to New York or wherever but it's going to be cold the rest of the way and you know, I think it's it's a great thing to have that we can definitely run the football in, in any situation. You, know, you don't have to rely on the pass uh, to, to keep you in a ball game. It's going to be cold the rest of the way. That about covers it for anyone not playing in Texas, and we've definitely seen some cold ones. Pat, it's one reason why American football is such a great game. You need fast guys and fat guys to work together. Speed and power and brains and accuracy and cooperation are all rewarded. But I also love that you start the season sweating out of your helmet in August, uh, I guess not two a days. And then you could possibly play games in, in November and December in the rain, wind, or snow. So you have to face and deal with a little bit of everything. The round one games are two each in Minnesota, Ohio, New York, and Maryland, and one each in Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Georgia, Texas, and Washington State. So you're going to get a range of weather, but the national forecast looks relatively balmy. So maybe there won't be any weather flukes in the final results. 
One of the other things we also see in the difference between the regular season and the playoffs is that the NCAA mandates that uh, admission is charged. You can't, There are no free student uh, passes unless a school is willing to pay for its students to attend free. So you are in a situation where you have gone from maybe having eight or 9,000 people at your Week 11 rivalry game the week before, and the same stadium seems a little bit different when you've got just 1,700 in the, in the park. Yeah, although I think the, the week that's the natural disappointment is the uh, Saturday after Thanksgiving where most of the people on campus have left campus, and so you have these games at campus sites, which is the right place to have them. But sometimes that's where you get the, the most lackluster crowd, and it can be for the biggest game of the year. It's also a week in which all games kick off at noon local time. That's also something mandated by the NCAA. We'll talk a little bit later about that, but that's also different too because – you know, this is a situation where you might be accustomed to playing at one o'clock or at seven o'clock or something like that. And, you know, as if you're a fan, which I think a lot of our listeners are, your tailgate starts pretty early. Of course it does. That's the uh, you want to maximize your day. And uh, I guess if noon is kickoff time, then the tailgate just starts a little earlier than it normally does. But it's the playoffs, So you got to you got to go big and, and half the teams are going home. I guess you got to start with uh, Bloody Mary or something like that rather than, um, you know, a beer or something like that. I am not going to tell you what to drink at a tailgate. And in fact, you better be 21 because otherwise I don't want to hear about it. Any other truisms that uh, we should throw in here? No, I mean, I think we, we get to the, um, you know, the main ones that this first round a lot of times is just about the teams that um, that don't normally get a chance to do this. The teams that played their way in in week 11 and those teams will have an opportunity to measure themselves against the best. So, you know, it's going to be cool for me to see my alma mater go play John Carroll. And it may not be cool for me when I see the final score, but the idea of this is where my program ranks against a top 10 team in the country. And you really get to see it. You get to see matchups that you don't play, play in regions that you don't normally play Hanover, a team that had three losses midway through the season now is a playoff team. Denison, you know, that that if uh, you felt awful for them when they lost that 68-66 four-overtime game at Wittenberg, rallied its way into the playoffs. So this week um, it's not going to be as much about the, the the Whitewaters and the St. John's and, you know, Mount Union, maybe where the, the teams that tend to crush will probably crush, although do have maybe a, a quarterback injury that we're dealing with at Mount Union. Um but, it, but it's a, it's about the opportunity to see these new matchups or in the case of Bethel Warburg and DelVal Muhlenberg and Mary Harden Baylor, Harden Simmons, the same old matchups. But it's an opportunity to, to just enjoy the experience and everybody, uh, because they, there are AQs, you know, they have a chance to, to get in and represent their conference in their region and all that. And, and then, as you alluded to, that that stretch where all the games are ending or even if you're at one of the games, but. You know, once yours is over, they're just a string of other games ending all over the country. And, and sometimes a lot of fun stuff happens in that window. Coming up, we'll talk about each bracket and we'll welcome in Adam Turr to preview a key game. Frank Rossi will preview a key game, a key game also. Bet you can't uh, guess which bracket that will be in. And then Keith and I will do the same as well. Also, we're going to talk with Mark Baltz. He's the coordinator of officials of football officials for the Division Three playoffs. 
But before we do, I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently available for sponsorship. You could be reaching the largest audience of the season, and it's full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment, who can influence decisions to replace turf, all sorts of things by sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Think of all the things that, uh, for example, the other 218 coaches are doing this week, right? They are thinking about scheduling for next year. They are doing all sorts of things because there's no offseason for coaches. They would be prime candidates to be buyers for whatever your product or service is. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about it right here in our break, so think about it. And you know the deal. Drop me a line at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. We have had the highest listenership, not only on an aggregate level, of course, because we seem to be doing a podcast every five minutes, but also on an average. So uh, this is the time to reach the audience. And we're going to run down the brackets here as uh, we look through and get you ready for the round of 32. And we're going to start at the top left with Keith. So let's start the rundown the way the selection show started with that first game in the upper left. Number two ranked Mary Harden-Baylor at number seven Harden-Simmons. If you've followed for any length of time, you understand why this is the matchup. But if this is your first time with us listening, here's how two of the seven best teams in the country, and that's by our poll, not necessarily by playoff criteria, get matched up against each other in round one. The NCAA pays for everything in the playoffs, which is quite a better predicament than schools paying for themselves, as they do in NAIA. The caveat is that any distance more than 500 miles must be covered by air travel, and the NCAA, which picks up the tab for that travel, needs to limit that as much as possible, because it's not going to make its money back on D3 gate receipts. So the bracket broke in the way that the two West Coast teams had to play each other, Barry and Maryville. Look at that, Mary. What a beautiful, even texture. We're able to drive to one another to face off, and that left Mary Harden-Baylor and Harden-Simmons forced to play each other in round one, just as they had in 2015, 2008, 2006, 2004, even though the criteria specifically says conference rematches should be avoided. On one hand, I don't feel that badly for Harden-Simmons since their midseason loss was by 26 points, and they'd avoided the rematch in the past two first rounds, only to fall flat against Linfield by two touchdowns both times, once at home, once in Oregon. On the other hand, though, the Cowboys are third nationally in total offense and scored 58 points per game against non-Mary Harden-Baylor opponents, so it would have been intriguing for the committee to be able to just drop them in the Mount Union bracket or the Brockport quadrant and see how things would have turned out, especially in a year when the Stag Bowl is in Texas. It would have been wise not to ensure that one of the homegrown teams is gone immediately. But alas the game itself both sides are pitching how different they are since their first meeting and of course there's some truth to that but i'm not sure i buy it totally harden simmons running back jaquan hemphill missed the first meeting while the cowboys tried to utilize bryson hammonds and reese childress hemphill will also not play again on saturday for mary harden baylor jace hammock not luke Porman, was the quarterback and that'll be the case again both teams have refined their attacks and blown out everyone else they face zero close games Harden-Simmons once won by only 14, and Mary Harden-Baylor's closest margin besides the Cowboys has been 33. Harden-Simmons has received better play of late from quarterback Ty Hooper, and Hammonds has adjusted to a lead back role while Kevy Evans and Ray Millsap surround Childress in the receiving core. But just like you could talk yourself into Harden-Simmons playing better, remember that Mary Harden-Baylor had three red zone turnovers in the first game, which seems unlikely to happen again. Harden-Simmons will either try to take a big risk, maybe a gadget play early to score first, keep itself in the game, or it'll try to dominate the ball and limit the chances for the Cruz crowd to get into it. 
Ultimately, though, it would be a major surprise to see this result flip. The winner of the Texas matchup faces the winner of another pair of teams that played already this season. Barry beat Maryville 38-3 in week one, and Maryville lost to another playoff team, center, 40-6 in week two. Then it ran off seven wins against USA South opponents. St. John's, the number three team in the D3Football.com poll, should make quick work of UMAC champ Martin Luther, but the Johnnies still want QB Jackson Erdman and that offense to stay sharp. Claremont Mudscript's trip to Whitworth is intriguing because we really don't know how good the Stags or the Pirates are. Uh, Claremont Mudstrips lost a handful of close games, and Whitworth didn't play many. They sort of made their name this season on that Linfield win, which was uh, 19-7 very late in that game, and then basically just kept on winning. And, and nationally, I don't think we've spent a lot of time on Whitworth. In the bottom left corner of the bracket, we have Eureka at UW-Whitewater. We have Trine at St. Norbert. On the bottom half of the bracket, we have Hanover and North Central and the game, which I'll be talking about, which is Wartburg at Bethel. Wartburg, of course, came out of the gate a little sluggish this season, having kept Matt Sasha, but losing a bunch of key personnel around him after last year's quarterfinal appearance. The night started off 3-2. and two. Sasha is just as good at advertised here for a second year, however, and the defense has done a good job locking things down after those two losses. The piece that Warburg has missed in its losses is the ground game, however, especially in the loss to Monmouth. But Mason Carter has come back after missing a couple of games, and he's averaged 101 yards per game, plus scored seven touchdowns on the ground in the final four games of the regular season. Plus, JoJo McNair has gotten even more targets as a two-way player down the stretch as well, averaging more than seven catches a game in the latter half of the season, in addition to his two interceptions and 25 tackles from his starting cornerback spot. Bethel, on the other hand, you heard Adam talk about the roommate combination of San Gibbis and Jaron Rossi. Each of them ripped off one big run early to stake Bethel to a 14-0 lead in the game it eventually won last week, 21-15 against St. Thomas. That accounted for 93 of Rossi's 116 rushing yards and 41 of Gibbis' 67. So if Wartburg can control the big play, this will be the low-scoring battle it appears to be on paper. Of course, this battle also appears to be on grass, not on paper, and that's an unusual thing that happens in this day and age in Division Three. Just 32 teams left in all of Division Three with grass, and uh, the weather should be decent for grass on Saturday in Arden Hills, Minnesota, but uh, the grass has not been in the, the best of shape. It just is never in the best of shape in November. A couple of years ago, the last time that Bethel made the first round of the playoffs, they hosted that first game at the Metrodome, which tells you, of course, first off, how long it's been since Bethel has uh, been in the playoffs and just how much they wanted to keep uh, from putting a pounding on that grass. Elsewhere in this bracket, of course, the interesting question for Eureka will be whether it can give any room to Leanthony Reasonover to run on a consistent basis against UW-Whitewater. We saw last year that Reasonover did not have a lot of room to run against St. Thomas, and I don't expect it to be too much different here in uh, 2018 against the Warhawks. Uh, the other game at the top half of the bracket is a really interesting one because it's uh, Lamar Carswell, the uh, top running back in the country. You know, at least uh, aside from uh, Reasonover in terms of numbers, he's the trying running back. He goes against St. Norbert. The interesting thing against uh, St. Norbert is that, uh, you know, St. Norbert has gone to this triple option offense where they will be uh, attempting to really control the clock a little bit more. One of the key portions of the game plan there has to just be keeping the ball out of the hands of the trying offense and that, I think, is a, is also a kind of a sleeper for another interesting game. But we thought that last year about Trine against the Midwest Conference champ and Trine and Monmouth were close early and then Trine just blew everything out of the water late. Trine doesn't have as many weapons on offense, but it has the best one and possibly the best running back in the country. So that should be uh, plenty of uh, 
plenty of firepower for them to handle St. Norbert in the first round. Now to take a look at the top right-hand portion of the bracket, we'll send it to Adam Turr. Two of the most exciting first-round matchups should happen in the same quadrant. Mount Union's defense should do what the rest of the NCAC couldn't and stifle quarterback Kanan Gabley in the Denison Big Red. John Carroll's defense should do what most of the ODAC couldn't and slow Trey Frederick, Jordan Hall, and the Randolph-Macon rushing attack. But the other two games in this quadrant are toss-ups. Center and Washington and Jefferson both rely on balanced offenses that are designed to be able to rush for 200 yards and pass for 300 yards in the same game, and often come close to doing both. If you're looking for a first-round shootout, this is the game to keep an eye on. My eyes will be on Muhlenberg, the Pool C team that earned the fifth and final at-large bid and was then rewarded with a somewhat favorable draw. Delaware Valley is on a nine-game winning streak since dropping its season opener to Wesley. The defense, led by twin freshmen Michael and Anthony Nobile, hasn't yielded a point since October. But the Mules will be the toughest challenge the Aggies have faced all season, at least since they faced the Wolverines in Week 1. Muhlenberg plays fearlessly. They can win big games on the road, and they can come from behind. As long as they don't turn the ball over five times, like they did in their lone loss to fellow playoff participant Johns Hopkins, the Mules can hang in this game until the end. If they take an early lead and force Deshaun Darden to use his arm more than his legs, the Aggies will be thrown off their game plan. On defense, the Aggies want to stuff the run and make sophomore quarterback Michael Hanakowski beat them. Darden and Hanakowski have nearly identical passing efficiency numbers. Will it be the senior or the sophomore who plays mistake-free and comes up with big plays late? With both defenses standing strong against the rush, I think the scales tip in favor of the more prolific passer from Muhlenberg. In a weird year for the Mac, its champion losing at home in round one would not be the most shocking result. Lastly, to take a look at the bottom right hand of the bracket, we have Western New England at Frostburg State, MIT at Johns Hopkins, and Framingham State at Brockport, plus the game that Frank is previewing. From In the Huddle and D3Football.com, I'm Frank Rossi. When it comes to postseason play, two teams in the East that have shown recent consistency in making it to extra games are Husson and RPI. As they prepare to face off on Saturday in Troy, New York in the Brockport bracket, a lot of questions are waiting to be answered by both teams. For RPI, the questions revolve around an offense that has been at times anemic and a defense that was exploited by a Union Dutchman team in Week 11's Dutchman Shoes game. Sophomore quarterback George Marinopoulos has thrown for only 12 touchdowns against eight interceptions this season, as the engineers have averaged a moderate 363 yards per game on offense. Some of the sloppy play has led to a shrinking of the team's turnover margin, which stands at just a plus four after nine games this season, and RPI's average point differential, which is less than 11 points per game. For Husson, despite having a turnover margin of plus 14 and a point differential of over 26 points per game, the Eagles' questions revolve around the caliber of teams they played to arrive at those stats. Husson's strength of schedule was the 199th best out of 238 ranked teams this season, while RPI's was 61st best. While running back John Smith has graduated, senior quarterback Corey Brandon has bounced back after some early challenges as the team found a new run attack with sophomore Meese Larrero and freshman Solomon Hassan combining for over 1,700 yards on the ground and 19 touchdowns. It's allowed Brandon to pass for 26 touchdowns of his own. While memories of Hassan's stunning win at Springfield in the 2017 playoffs are still prevalent, this appears to be an even tougher test with RPI having played higher caliber teams. Oddly enough, though, they did have a common opponent bookending their seasons. Husson dropped their opener to Union by 23 points, while RPI dropped their finale to Union by 24 points. This game could indeed be that close. In that case, give the advantage to the home team playing their first NCAA football playoff game ever at their East College Athletic Village Stadium in Troy. Back to you, Pat and Keith. Keith, we should give the rest of these games in this bracket their due a little bit as well. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, 
Framingham at Brockport, Western New England at Frostburg State are probably going to be two of the bigger blowouts. The interesting one, I guess, is MIT at Johns Hopkins, but that's interesting from an academic standpoint. If nothing else, these are two of the elite research institutions in the country. I don't expect it to be a significantly close football game either, however. Yeah, if you remember a couple of years ago when MIT made the playoffs and uh, beat Husson in the first round, and it was sort of a a uh, semi-national story at, at the time because, oh, my gosh, smart kids can play football, which is only like the whole entire basis of, of Division III. <laughs> yeah. uh, they went they went to Wesley the next week, and the score was like 56-6 or something. So this probably won't be uh, quite that bad. But Johns Hopkins really does have a high-powered offense, and, and they're going to put up some points on Saturday. And now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Mark Baltz. Mark Baltz, a, a former official from the NFL uh, from uh, 1989 to 2013. Yeah, I'm reading straight off of Wikipedia, so I apologize to everybody who was told not to crib from Wikipedia for their papers. But uh, Mark is... Uh, <laughs> Mark is joining us here on this podcast because he also is uh, is uh, related to, uh, very strongly to Division Three and how the Division Three playoffs are set up. So, Mark, welcome and thanks for joining us. And can you tell us a little bit about the playoffs? Sure, can Pat. Thanks. It's uh, it's nice to be with you. I was uh, I applied for the newly created position of uh, Division Three coordinator of football officials about five years ago. Somehow I was selected. I don't know whether it's because I live right here in the Indianapolis area close to the NCAA or uh, I really don't think that had a lot to do with it. But uh, anyhow, I got selected to do this job. Uh, It was a job uh, of assigning the primarily assigning all the officials to the playoffs. Once the brackets were set, that job had previously been done by the committee for a number of years. And this is my fifth year uh, that I've assigned the officials for the, uh, playoffs nationwide uh, once the brackets uh, have been set. So uh, it's been a fun job. Uh, I think I got the job because most of the most of the committee was really unfamiliar with uh, all the players involved. Uh, me being a 50-year lifetime sports official, uh, I already knew most of the officiating coordinators in the D3 leagues around the country. Uh, I personally uh, assign one of the conferences myself, uh, the Heartland Conference here in uh, Ohio, Indiana. So uh, I'm familiar with uh, most of the supervisors of the 24, 25, 26 different D3 conferences across the country. Some of them are uh, still current uh, officials at uh, the D1 level uh, or the NFL level. A lot of them are retired officials. Uh, and over the years, uh, I became friends in one way or another with most of them. I've reached out to all of them over the past several years, and we've really worked hard to uh, improve this thing and make it work. And I think the NCAA has really been pleased uh, uh, the results the last several years of the officiating uh, that we've had in the playoffs and taking the politics out of it that the committee got involved with. I pretty much have the final say. The committee rubber stamps it after I make the assignments, and uh, and we go from there. And we do that uh, throughout the five weeks of the the playoffs up through the Stag Bowl uh, in mid-December. Now, I think as we understand it, we've been told that a crew that's assigned to a playoff game is ostensibly going to be a crew that doesn't work for either conference, hasn't seen either of the two teams play. And I think that's about the extent of what we know. So can you tell us a little bit more about how crews are assigned and matched up with games and that sort of thing? Sure. Every conference uh, that has an automatic qualifier 
gets to submit two crews from their conference uh, for consideration. Those lists are sent to the NCAA office and then forwarded on to me. They're run through Arbiter and uh, they're given their background check, which the NCAA started to require several years ago. And uh, they do all of that legwork. And once everybody's approved, the lists come to me. I compile them all uh, into uh, just a little tablet form here that I can work with. And then once J.P. Williams uh, or Nick Straw from the office send me the pairings on Sunday afternoon, I get to work. And uh, what took the committee a good day, day and a half to put together, uh, assigning 16 crews of officials the first week takes me about a an hour or two and I get it back to them. So it's, it's pretty efficient. You are correct. They have a lot of requirements where uh, or a crew of officials cannot have seen a team work. So we try to work around that as much as possible. For example, this year, the first game in the bracket is the two Texas schools playing each other. And now that that's down to one conference uh, with 25 crews of officials, we had to find officials that, uh, and uh, Tim Crowley, their supervisor, put together two crews of officials that did not have uh, Mary Harden Baylor or Harden Simmons throughout the season. So Yes, we do try to make that work most of the time. Every once in a while, there'll be maybe a crew that uh, maybe one official on the crew had one of the teams at some time during the season. But we try to avoid that uh, if at all possible. So, yes, that is that is true. But there's so many other criteria that come into come into play with the 500 mile travel radius that the NCAA puts up uh, for expense purposes and. Mm -hmm. Uh, everybody has to be able to be within the 500-mile driving distance of a school where we assign them to work. So it gets to be a pretty tough job. So you have to pick a conference close by to send a crew in there. And uh, so we do the best we can, and, and it, it works out pretty well. How do you get from the 50 crews or maybe 52 crews or whatever that you start with and then assign 16 first-round games out of that? What are the, then, of the criteria that you're looking for? Well, the list I get, like I said, I get a list of two crews from, from every conference, which if they all send a, send a two in, gives me 40 to 50 crews to pick from, and I only need 16, and they rank their crews, uh, their top crew or their, and their second uh, or their alternate crew. Uh, I try to use all, their number one, all the number one crews uh, the first week and uh, then the second week. Uh, sometimes that's not always possible. I end up using both crews uh, for maybe one a stronger conference than another conference uh, because the ultimate criteria is to have the best crews possible. And a couple of years ago, rather than using all the officials, the committee said, we want the best officials on the game. So rather than using all the crews that are submitted, uh, I use 16 crews the first week. I use eight crews the second week. And I have those those two weeks games evaluated by the supervisors themselves. I assign them a neutral game that doesn't involve their crew. They evaluate the game, the, the officials on the game who for the most part will be unfamiliar to them. So it's a pretty much a neutral evaluation. I take those 24 evaluations from the first two weeks and pull out the seven highest rated crews out of the first two weeks of the playoff and use those seven crews for the balance of the, quarterfinals, semifinals, and the Stag Bowl. So that way we're guaranteed uh, we're getting the better officials, uh, the officials that are uh, experienced and, and doing a good job on the game. I think people would be happy to hear that there are uh, that there's an evaluation of the officials that uh, work those, those first two weekends 
and then the best get to get to move on. Do you also get uh, feedback and do coaches uh, give evaluations on officials from these games as well? Coaches, coaches can give input. We really don't, you know, unless there's something catastrophic, which knock on wood hasn't happened in my five-year tenure. But uh, I guess in the past there were some some very controversial plays, and uh, not to say that there haven't been over the past five years, but uh, you know, there there's something something that happens in every game, every every place across the country, every week. But we've been very fortunate with the playoff series the last five years, and. There's always going to be a tough call, a tough judgment call, uh, and we don't have replay except in the finals, so uh, semifinals and finals now. But uh, so, you know, there's always going to be a call that could possibly be missed. Indeed, there is a replay now at the semifinals for the last several years and at the championship game for a little over a decade. What is it like for those final crews who, you know, in Division Three, never have to worry about that or never have that as uh, as a backup to then have to incorporate that into their workflow for the final three games of the season? Well, what we're, what we're able to do uh, at the semifinals, uh, uh, DV Sports or ESPN or whoever, whoever's doing the semifinal game uh, provides uh, for D1 officiating uh, replay crews to to be part of the process and they meet with the officials on uh, well before the game the officials are required to be in there a day ahead of time and they have plenty of meetings and learn how how they're going to be beeped and and some officials have had some experience with the being beeped before and uh, they kind of they're around officials all the time that know how the process works so it's really not all that difficult and the crews try not to be as intrusive as they are at, at the d1 level uh, you know, get the big ones, uh, take a look at them. And I think in last year's championship game, they were beeped uh, just once, interrupted the game and confirmed the call. So uh, the process is pretty smooth. And, and the guys on the field, uh, having not had it, uh, they're kind of surprised when they do get beeped. And the process pretty much handles itself because you've got experienced replay officials helping them through the process. So mm-hmm. it's not too intrusive. Uh, which is one of the big bugaboos about replay. It's uh, it's getting more more and more intrusive to the game, and uh, at the D three level, we try to get the big ones and and keep it uh, keep it simple. But it seems to be working very well. Keith, I took away a couple of things from this. One is that the ASC is going to have two crews out there who have not worked in a Harden Simmons or a UMHB game all year, and one of them will be working that game on Saturday because of the. 500. And the other is that they intentionally didn't call down to the field to stop the game in the Stag Bowl. That kind of surprised me a little bit. I totally get that replay is intrusive. I just thought that maybe our title game deserved a tad more intrusion than a random Saturday game in the SEC or the Big Ten. The flip side, I guess, is you could say that the officials are so used to uh, making the calls that they make and sticking with them on the field that uh, they're sharper than those folks that rely on replay. But that might be a bit of a reach. I think it, I think it might be. I'd love to think that we have better officials, but I, I find that a little difficult to believe, I guess. So I took away from um, the, the interview with uh, Mr. Baltz is, uh, you know, that this whole this whole officiating thing is a little more complicated than it looks. And, and I imagine that's probably a safe assumption that there's a lot more to it than it sometimes appears. But I, I think also officiating as much as anything in, in, in sports, everybody thinks they can do it just as well as the guys are out there doing it. And almost nobody knows the rules or knows how much time 
is put into this. I know Adam Turr wrote in Around the Nation about uh, officials this year and, and sort of why they do it. But I like, and, and you pointed this out during the interview, I really like that they they evaluate the best officials so that this is not just the playoffs for the players. This is the playoffs for the officials, too. They're taking the best guys from the crews from round one and round two and making sure that the biggest games of the year have the best officials uh, work in them. Yeah, I do like we cut 16 crews down to seven for the final three weeks of the season. I really did enjoy that. And if he had not volunteered that information, that was going to be something I was going to have to ask. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. That was the time in the podcast where we take a question from Twitter. We didn't even have to ask for one. and We don't usually do one on Friday, but uh, it seemed good to have it because uh, Andrew Weibel or at Pollo underscore Picante you're going to have to know your Spanish to be able to spell that. Asked ATN pod question, when is the NCAA going to finally stop requiring every playoff game to start at noon, local time, hashtag D3FB? Great question. We would be greatly appreciative of a little bit more staggered game times. You know, of course, part of the reason why this evolved this way to have all of the games uh, required to be kicked off at noon local time is because when we started doing it this way well more than 20 years ago, we were not in a situation where every Division Three field was blessed with lights. And not everyone is now, but it's pretty close. We're at the situation where uh, at that point, if you started a game at 1 o'clock or at 1.30, there was a very real chance that it could end you know, in some form of semi-darkness. And that is not something that we wanted to have with uh, some of the most important games of the year. So that's definitely part of it. I think also, too, there's just a there would be a hassle with haggling over who gets to start later, who gets to start at an appointed time, that sort of thing. So just having one hard and fast rule and uh, you know sticking with it at least makes this a little easier, boy. But boy, it would sure be nice to have a full day of football staggered like you do when you get to sit down for March Madness. Pat, you, you do bring up a couple of good points. One is you know if if one team. Um, especially one that's bussing back if they want to get out of town sooner, but the local team wants to play uh, a, a night kickoff, then maybe you're dealing with costing uh, a team extra money or costing fans more money because they have to stay in the, in a town at night. But I, th- I think the main thing you hit on is really the source of it. It, it was just that, you know, you're, they're dealing with D3 schools who didn't always have lights. And when the ruling is just they kick off at noon, there's no argument. But I do think at this stage of the game, there should be a mechanism in there for teams, especially if both sides agree, to be able to play at three, six. I would take it as late as, you know, eight eight o'clock kickoff local. Um, And that would make for a a really great day of watching games. And there was a time where that may not have been feasible or or, uh, something that people were interested in. But now that we can all pretty much watch the games on our computers – some of us, if we're not the driver, can watch the game on the phone. So yeah. it would be nice to be able to um, to do that. Now, I know there's, you know, as soon as the games are over, pl- the plans need to be made for the teams that are advancing. And and um, maybe it's good to have everything over sooner rather than later. But, but I think to answer Andrew's question, I think there should be – we basically should assume all the games start at 12 unless – there's a mechanism, you know, there should be a mechanism in place for, for certain games to, to be able to move if, um, if the field is equipped for it and, uh, and if both sides want it. 
you know, I do believe that this committee is interested in considering this. You know, we're in a situation where we're not likely to get too many other enhancements to this bracket that are going to be fan friendly. You know, maybe there's an opportunity for us to do something like that. But we're not going to get better brackets, and clearly we are not going to get better brackets for a while. Maybe at least we can make these games more visible. One other story that kind of flew through the front page of the website so quickly this week that readers might have missed it. Uh, on Tuesday, Earlham College announced that it was suspending football for the 2019 season with the intent of studying it and seeing if it uh, can be brought back as a healthy or more successful program in 2020. Of course, Earlham, we have talked about uh, quite a bit, especially over in the latter half of the season, as they approached and then surpassed the record for consecutive losses in Division Three football history. The Quakers currently sit at 54 consecutive losses. Frank Rossi and James Baker over at In the Huddle talked with Andrew Donato, the head coach at Grove City, about the situation because Grove City is a program which was struggling just a few years ago. You know, obviously I feel for any players or staff that, you know, obviously situations or you never know all the details, but we were there. It's tough. I mean, when you're at that point, you've lost a lot of football games, definitely can empathize with anybody in that situation. And Really, I would just say three things which helped us, and I learned this from people way smarter than me, is is just to, to number one, start with a vision. Know where you want to go. For ours, it's to glorify God and earning a degree, building lasting relationships, and competing for PAC championships, and really having a specific vision, and we told our guys, and Dalton bought into this, focus on your vision, not your circumstance. Sometimes you can't control circumstances, they get tough, but if you have a vision you can keep your eyes on, then you can have something to have hope and look forward to. And we told our guys from day one, focus on the vision, not the circumstance. And, you know, so when you're going to the weight room, don't think, why am I doing this? We're 0 and 33. We tell them, live in the why, not the what. It's not about what you're doing. It's about why you're doing it. And you're doing it to get Grove City football back to competing for championships and being respectable. So to have that vision and keep your eyes on that second, know it's a process. You know, I told these guys, the vision is to compete for championships, but year one, I told them it's not going to happen this year. It's probably not going to happen next year. It's going to be a process. And we laid out what that process looked like, and we said it's going to take a couple years and, you know, just keep buying into what we're doing. And if you have a vision, you embrace and you know it's going to be a process. It's not going to happen overnight. As much as we want quick fixes, it's not going to happen right away. And if you have the third part of love, and that's where brick by brick comes into play is, you know, each, we all speak the same language. If our president talks Grove City football, he talks brick by brick. If a senior in high school, a recruit commits to Grove City, they say, I'm coming to build brick by brick. And it's really been those three things that have helped us. It's having a vision, knowing that it's going to be a process and just understanding that. And then love, get everybody to speak the same language. You know, we really feel as a program, it's those three ingredients which got us from 0-33 to, to just having a moment like you guys gave for us by having that live stream and celebrating. And, uh, you know, I believe that for anybody, though. I think anybody who has a tough circumstance in anything in life, if you have a vision, embrace the process, and you have people to love and support you, you know, you can turn around any circumstance, and that's what we've experienced here at Grove City. I thought Coach Donato hit on most of the really key points, having a vision, um, pacing yourself when, when you're doing a rebuild, and realizing that, you know, just setting the expectations to the to the players, to the alumni that we're, we're headed in the right direction and we, we see where the light is at the end of the tunnel, but don't expect it to be like 0-10 one year, 8-2 the next year. At Grove City, this is, this is a really timely uh, interview by the, uh, by the In the Huddle guys because Grove City 
uh, finished seven and three this season and has not completed the turnaround, but certainly shown that that they're now, if the goal is to compete for pack titles, that, that they're in the mix. So definitely an instructive interview. Here's one thing, though, that that came up a little bit in this and applies to Earlham. And it, it's that on any given Saturday, right, the goal of a football team is to win on at the beginning of a season. The goal is to get to the stag bowl, right, to win. But the goal of a, having a football program at a college is not for it to win, right? So Earlham having this losing streak alone doesn't make it not worthy of having a football program. And so for them to, to do this bit of soul searching, clearly spurred by the lack of success. And I don't think it's fun for anybody to go all season and lose games 80 to seven and, and, and that sort of thing. You know, if your numbers are to the point where this came up, we talked about Occidental and previous years when mm-hmm. Maranatha Baptist was, was just hanging on to its football program. If you get to a point where you have players playing out of position or you don't have enough linemen, now you're risking people getting hurt, and that and that's really serious. But that doesn't seem to be that much of the the, the case at Earlham, although it's certainly going to be hard to recruit good players by the numbers that you need to sustain a program when you're known for losing. But I think as they go through this bit of soul searching and, and as any program that is in a losing streak, and, and Earlham's certainly not the only one, although they're, they've got the longest one right now, the question is, what does football bring to this campus? And in some cases, it's as simple as, hey, we need 100 males to, to balance out the enrollment. But usually it's going to be something a little more uh, abstract and um, maybe noble. Nobile. For lack of a better word, right? You're, 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 all the athletic programs are supposed to be adding something to a student's experience, to the campus experience. And whether you go 0-10 in a season or not, uh, shouldn't be the sole determinant whether you keep football. So it, it may it may end up that that the right move is for Earlham to shut it down, and it's probably prudent of them to take a year and look at it. There have been a couple of occasions where teams have backed off for a year, and their football program has survived. So uh, so it can be done. Yeah. Best of luck to Earlham. We will keep as close an eye on that situation as we can. We're trying to figure out, you know, how can we cover that conversation? Because I think it's an interesting and important conversation about the role of football on a, uh, on a small college campus and that sort of thing. And we want to have that conversation in the off season when it's a good time to have those sorts of conversations. Keith, there have also been a couple of coaching changes already. Uh, the one that we'll take a couple of minutes to mention here on this podcast is that Don Beebe is now a Division Three head football coach. Don Beebe of knocking the ball out of Leon Lett's hand fame. Yes, that's the guy. He, he uh, had a fairly distinguished career, I guess, with, uh, with the Bills and, and Packers. Um, so if you're of our generation, Pat, you know, someone who was in their 30s and 40s and remembers watching football in the 90s, you'll remember him. And this happens from time to time in, in D3 where uh, a – Former NFL players certainly haven't really had many stars become uh, coaches, although I guess uh, Joe Jacoby ending up at Concordia, Chicago, was kind of interesting. Shenandoah also, I think, several years at Shenandoah. Right. I mean, I, I, I mean it's it's kind of neat that, uh, you know, that guys resurface and, and that, uh, you know, they find the love for the game once you've been, quote, unquote, at the big time, and then you can come back and uh, and still make the big time where you are to borrow a, a popular D3 phrase. I think it's cool to see. 
All right, so Keith wants to do on the spot here in week 12, which in and of itself puts me on the spot because I was not particularly prepared to put him on the spot. So uh, I think we're back to coin flipping. Oh, how are we coin flipping? If I thought you were, I thought you were just saying just then you were, you're not going to do it. You're just going to answer it on the spot. No, I think uh, if if we're going to do on the spot, I'm going to have to do on the spot, literally on the spot. So the coin flip will determine whether I have to go first, which will be even worse. But uh, I assume you're sticking with tails. Yes, and for what it's worth, I, my my uh, on the spot is not anything you could get wrong. Well, it's tails, so you get to choose whether to go first or stick me with uh, going first. I'd like to go first because I have a concept, and that'll stall and buy you some time. I appreciate that. Go go concept. All right, so um, somebody has recently come into a bunch of money and decided that the playoff bracket should be whatever it needs to be. Got the flights taken care of. If every team needs to fly, money is not a problem. Pat, you, as part of this uh, rich person re- reorganization, you get also get to uh, join the selection committee with the primary responsibility of choosing three matchups from the 32 teams that made the playoffs this year that you'd like to see. Money is no object. An example would be Harden-Simmons at Johns Hopkins or Johns Hopkins at Harden-Simmons if you feel like sending them to Texas, where you'd be matching uh, two top five offenses and maybe get a shootout in a game between teams that otherwise would never play each other. Can All right. you think of three three sets of teams that you'd like to see play? And these are and they they should be first round games then, right? Yes. All right, and they should be uh, they should be games between four and five seeds, or if you're thinking about one half of the bracket, they need to be games between eight and nine seeds. Because I'm not going to break up this bracket without coming up with a uh, a game that really makes some sense. So let's see. I like your thinking about Harden Simmons. Harden Simmons definitely needs a different first round matchup. I think the the pairing that I would like to see first off would be Harden Simmons and Trine. I think that uh, that would be a, an interesting pairing because we would get to see you know first of uh, first off Carswell against a, a team that is going to play at you know a pretty high rate of speed is going to be pretty athletic. So I definitely would be interested in that right out of the gate. If we're truly thinking about something where money is no object, then uh, I'm going to do something I've always wanted to do and I have talked about doing every time that Husson has been in this bracket and I've thought about projecting them out to the West Coast. So I think uh, just for uh, kicks and giggles, I'm going to put Husson on a plane and send them to Whitworth. I think that'll be a, a fun matchup here in this first round. And finally, of course, since I have taken Harden-Simmons away from its matchup with Mary Harden-Baylor and I've matched somebody else up against Whitworth, that frees up Claremont Mudd-Scripps. So I'm going to have Claremont Mudd-Scripps at Mary Harden-Baylor, and this matchup is going to break all scoreboards everywhere because no scoreboard is going to be capable of handling all of those characters when you have Claremont Mudd-Scripps at Mary Harden-Baylor. That is a lot of names. Ne- never mind that I have these two like orphan schools over here like RPI who no longer has Husson to play. You didn't say I had to make the entire bracket make sense, so that's what I'm going to go with. Yeah, I figured in the interest of uh, speed that yeah, you just pick three. Is that like a half a sandwich, a, a cup of soup, and then something else at Panera Bread? Oh, I thought you were referencing the Thanksgiving opening. Open, whatever, a side, tangent. I, the sides are the best part of Thanksgiving. Stuffing, man. 
Although stuffing is like spaghetti where like every household makes it differently and you only like the way you it grew up like your grandma or mom made it. And then uh, you go to someone else's house and you're like, why is there celery in the stuffing or whatever? Yeah. Like uh, chestnuts, the chestnut stuffing at my uh, at my in-laws. I am so happy to be with my family for Thanksgiving. All right, Keith, I am going to go uh, completely away from the NCAA playoffs for a second, and I'm going to have you pick three games from the non-playoff games going on this weekend and make compelling cases for why I should care about any of them, whether they are the ECAC Bowl games or the, oh, there is no New York Bowl, of course, because nobody was willing to play Cortland, so Cortland doesn't have a postseason bowl game, uh, but we also have a couple of New England bowl games and, of course, Max Centennial Bowls as well. And I should say, we not only have bowl games, of course, we have a handful of regular season games that were postponed out of previous weeks because of uh, weather and gunfire and the like. And they did get to reschedule those, which I think is, is pretty cool. Well, I think the first one I'd be interested in is Alfred at Salisbury in the Asa S. Bushnell ECAC Bowl. And mostly my interest here is is uh, Salisbury. And, and I remember it wasn't all that long ago that, uh, that Alfred and Salisbury were members of the Empire 8 together. Um, but I think mostly I'm thinking about the Seagulls kind of um, getting a pretty tough break this season or a tough end to the season. They started out 8-0. They lost in week 10 to Wesley in overtime, 19-13, and then they lost in week 11 to Frostburg State, a team that's been in the top 10 the entire season. Lost to them in overtime as well. So you go eight wins and two, like almost had wins. Um, those are the kind of teams you you want to see finish the season strong. And uh, and Alfred, of course, uh, beat Cortland early in the year and uh, and didn't really live up to, uh, to expectations, but should be a, a worthy opponent. Wesley and Westminster of Pennsylvania in the ECAC Clayton Chapman Bowl. I think this is another one where the matchup isn't as compelling as the chance to, to see Wesley finish strong. This is probably a, um, as hard luck, a hard luck team as there was out there this season, although there are a few, certainly a few candidates. Wesley lost um, three games by one point and then lost the finale by two points. Missed it by that much. Uh, just to outdo themselves uh, against Christopher Newport. So they finished six and four, five total points from uh, from being undefeated. Although I always thought the math on that, when people phrase it that way, is kind of weird, right? You weren't, you weren't five points from being undefeated because then those games would have all been ties and you would have had to play overtime. Yeah, but five whatever. points from a lot of overtimes. Uh, Westminster uh, beat Wittenberg or Wabash. Which team did they beat? Neither. They lost to Wittenberg. No, they beat W and J. Thank you, W and J. I knew they beat somebody good, so I don't know if you want to keep all that in. I actually, might be might be worth a laugh. W uh, Westminster uh, had a uh, had a pretty good win midway through the season, but otherwise, uh, another team that I don't know if they they quite lived up to expectations. But uh, that's the ECAC Clayton Chapman Bowl. And rather than pick another rematch, I think I think the third one for me is another ECAC game. It's uh, Utica and Ithaca. Ithaca is a team that maybe we did, we gave short shrift to in the playoff discussion, although I think the, the committee and, and you and Greg Thomas projected the, uh, the, the correct teams in, in Pool C. And I guess the committee confirmed that you guys were right and you guys confirmed that the committee was right, however that works. But Ithaca 
anecdotally, six, six points from Brockport and uh, beat Cortland and then also had a one-point loss to RPI. So they had two very close losses to teams that made the field and then had some uh, significant wins along the way. So that's a team I'd like to see play. And uh, Utica also gave Brockport a close game. So this is the um, the team that almost could have, should have, would have beat Brockport matchup. I think of it as the Utica jug, but yeah, either way it works. Oh uh, yeah, well, yours was much shorter. We've done the on the spot. Of course, we have to do our spot check, which is keeping us honest on last week's on the spot. Keith asked me where he thought our predictions might most likely go wrong. And as it turned out, as you just mentioned, of course, Keith, we did get all of the at-large teams correct. So it kind of didn't matter what we thought we might get wrong. Although Jim Catanzaro did say that the committee did consider Linfield as a one-loss team. And that was the part I identified as the one place we took a chance on something that might not pan out. Keith discussed less discussed rivalries, and I didn't make him pick winners, so he didn't have a chance to get those wrong, but uh, still, kudos for knowing right off the bat what the Mercer County Cup was. Of course, Quick Hits is our weekly Friday look at the upcoming set of games. We have six people giving answers to six questions in a vain attempt to give you some 36 opinions. From the standpoint of the game of the week, it's another win for Frank last week. We had four people, well, three and a half. Big St. Thomas at Bethel. I took Baldwin Wallace at John Carroll. But Frank goes east, and in this particular case, he gets the W once again, with Salisbury at Frostburg State being the best of the bunch. Frostburg winning, as mentioned, in overtime. In the area of most likely to be upset, the nominees were Frostburg State, Barry, RPI, and Linfield. And the envelope, please, Ryan, Frank, and Adam, and our guest, Greg Thomas, each get a point in their column with their picks. The rivalry game with the closest score, at least among the games mentioned, was the Cortica Jug game, a three-point win for Ithaca over Cortland, which was Greg's selection. Honorable mention to Adam's pick of the Monon Bell game, a seven-point contest. Dishonorable discharge for those who picked the Dutchman Shoes game, which was an unexpected 24-point runaway for Union over RPI. See this week's quick hits on the website by noon on Friday. From here on forward, we pick the scores of all Division Three playoff games, which will give you an idea of, A, how scoring, high scoring or low scoring we expect each game to be and how close we expect each game to be. Also, it's a good measurement of how butthurt you can be. I'm sorry, people don't seem to like when we pick against them or when we pick against them with actual scores. Keith, you have a usual take on this one. Oh, well, I, my usual take is uh, apparently nobody is motivated to win or to do anything until someone doubts them. And then, man, when those doubters come out, they're good. Then they can finally give a good effort on Saturday and maybe, just maybe, have a chance at winning a football game. But without you, without you haters and doubters picking against them, they would, I, who knows what they would do. Maybe they would just be uh, emotionless. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 224, released on November 16th, 2018. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage this weekend. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any place you get podcasts that will help other football fans find it. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Audio in this particular podcast provided by Brendan Gulick, as well as Frank Rossi and the folks set in the huddle. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Thanks to our correspondents, Adam Turr and Frank Rossi, plus guests Anthony Meglin and Mark Baltz for their time on this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter, and Keith is at D3Keith. 
We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate email address at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. And if you're not in this uh, playoff of 32 teams and you're still listening and you want to maybe switch over to following your basketball team, we have an entire website that does that. It's been doing that since 1997. You can uh, follow Division Three basketball what? all year round at d3hoops.com. That's www.d3hoops.com. Keep your elbows to yourself. And keep reaching for the stars. Thank you, Thank you so much, everybody.